Praise God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight for the opportunity to come here and to worship you. We thank you for the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world that we might be free from our sin tonight, that we might be free from guilt and condemnation, that we might be the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, not because of anything we've done, but because of what he's done. He laid his life down as a sacrificial lamb. And on him was put our sin and the sin of the world. It was judged on him. The price was paid in full that we can come to you freely and openly as children, sons and daughters of the almighty holy God, that we could be made holy and righteous in your sight. And so, Father, we thank you tonight. And now we open this word that you've given to us that reveals who you are, what you've done, and what you have called us to do and to be. In this word is the very power to carry out what you have put in here to say about us. And your word tells us that, that there are things that are in here yet that our eyes have not seen yet, that our ears have not yet heard, that have not yet entered into our hearts, all that you have prepared for those who love you. And so tonight, Father, we come because your word goes on to say that your spirit has been given to us to open our eyes and open our ears and open our hearts to see, hear, and receive all that you have prepared for us. And so we believe you for that tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to read this scripture. We're talking about, well, let me read it and tell you again, remind you, because we've taken several weeks off on another subject of what it is we've been talking about. This is part, of course, the famous Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to look in verse 13. Jesus says to them at the end of the Beatitudes, he says, uh, well, let's go back to verse 11. Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you. Say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. So if people have reviled you, made fun of you, persecuted you, and, and uh, called you names for being a Christian, you're not the first one. They did it to Jesus. And we're going to look a little bit at that tonight. And then he goes on to say, Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned or regain its saltiness again? It is then good for nothing, in other words, it doesn't any longer serve its purpose, but it should be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Second analogy here, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they hide a lamp and put it under a basket, but they put it on a lampstand and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. What we began to look at is going through challenging times, and we live in very challenging and difficult times. Going through challenging and difficult times, the way to go through them that the Bible gives is to find out what your purpose is and get involved in doing it. Now, God has a general purpose for all of us. He has an individual purpose for each one of us. But as a church, we have a purpose. And one of the things we began to see is that the purpose of the church is to be different than the world. And that's important to understand because you don't hear a lot about that nowadays. And as a result, you, don't, you see a tendency, and I'm very concerned because I see tendencies in the churches, not, just, not even so much here as other churches I've gone and things you see, but even here, the pressure of the world is to pull us to be like them. And we've studied back earlier this year when we spent all the time on renewing the mind that what that's all about in verse 2 of Romans 12, what it's all about is to not be conformed to this world. And we saw that means being pressured from outside forces so that we act 
and react just like the world acts and reacts. Instead, we are to be transformed, which was a different word that says, basically means to take what's been put inside of you, your real nature, and bring that to the outside. And we saw that the purpose for this study, that study, was so that you could prove what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. Prove it to who? We saw in Ephesians 2, it says that the church is here to demonstrate to the principalities and powers... In, in heavenly places, the goodness and the grace of God. We're here to demonstrate something about what God is like. Isn't that what he says here? Doesn't he says, Light your light show sign before men that they may see your good works, not your good intentions, your good works. And as a result, glorify your Father who is in heaven. So we're here, part of what all this battle is going on is there's a battle on to prove something to the world and to spiritual forces. And it's to prove what God is like, and that's being opposed by Satan and his method against the church. We saw that he couldn't keep you from being saved. Well, the Word of God says in Colossians 1.13, we've been transferred out of the kingdom, out of the domain, the kingdom of darkness, out of the domain, the authority of darkness, into the kingdom of his beloved Son. That's in the spirit realm. But there's a part of you that still lives in this natural realm. It's called your body. And your soul, your mind, your will, and your emotions are interfacing with your body all the time and your spirit to decide which one of the two is going to gain control over you. And what's at stake is what kind of witness to the world, what kind of witness to those angelic beings are we as a church and is the church in general, are we witnessing who God is like to the glory of God? This is part of why Paul said, I glory in my weakness now because in my weakness his strength is made perfect. It demonstrates God's grace, God's ability, not my ability and my strength. And so that's what he's talking about here. The same thing really that he's talking that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 12 that we study. So that's important to understand because if you don't understand that, our flesh's tendency is to want to be accepted. Our flesh's tendency is to want to blend in, to be popular. That's why we want to know what is the latest styles. And ladies especially, not all of them, but ladies especially, you know, is this in style? And my wife will say, oh, I saw that this is in style this season. And one of my favorite questions to ask her is, who decided that? <laughs> who decides what the style? I still haven't figured that one out. It's probably the same person, people that are they. You know, they say, who are they? I don't know. The same they's that decide what's, you know, what skirt styles to wear, what, you know. Oh, somebody just, I just know it has to be different than last year, so they sell it. Because <laughs> if it's the same as last year, you're not going to go out and buy it. So they got to keep changing it because you want to go buy it. But the point is this is that there's a tendency in human nature, and we'll talk more about that just a little later on, to want to be accepted. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that, except when that controls you and interferes with your purpose here. So we're taking this time to go back and understand that one of the purposes of the church, one of the purposes of the church is to be different than the world. One of God's purpose for your life and my life is to be different than the world. And if we don't understand that up front, we're going to have frustrated, frustrated. We're going to get, deal with all kinds of issues that we could deal, deal with ahead of time, but just knowing ahead of time, I'm not here to be accepted. 
I'm not here to be popular. Jesus wasn't popular, and Jesus wasn't accepted by everybody, but he did what his father called him to do and changed the history of mankind. So I really had a sense in my spirit that it's important for us as a church to just kind of wake up every once in a while and be reminded of some things or maybe never something we've never really thought of to just step back and really, wait a minute, what's involved here is not being accepted by the world, it's being accepted by Him. And so that's really the purpose behind this study. And so we began to look at this and we looked at some, some aspects of, out of this. And what, what we're going to begin to look at tonight, go with me to John 15. We covered this before, but I want to look at it a little more in depth. Because without what we're going to talk about tonight or begin to talk about tonight, and this is where I used to be. It's, well, all right, you know, we're, we're not supposed to be like the world. You know, that's been taken to extremes. So what this series is called is Living a Separated Life. And we, we talked in the beginning about what that means. And it doesn't mean, first of all, it doesn't mean being weird. Weird is different. <laughs> weird is different, but, but it's not a witness of Christ. He wasn't weird. Weird, when you're weird, you give the world an excuse to not have to listen to you. The other extreme we found out that separated does not mean is isolated. There's some people that believe to be separated from the world, you've got to go hide on top of a mountaintop somewhere with people that are doing the same thing you do. The problem is they may do some great works, but they're not, they're not doing the job of the church, which is witnessing, being a witness of Him to the world. The only way you can be a witness of Him to the world is to be out in the world. To be in the world, but the key is to be in it, but not of it. And that's the key. That's finding that balance. And I think what we're going to begin to study tonight will help you. John 15. We looked a little bit at this last time. We're going to look at the root because without what we're going to talk about tonight, the tendency is to think, okay, it's a bunch of do's and don'ts. So what you're telling me, Pastor, and I know this already, is that being a Christian means a bunch of things I can't do. And that's the approach of religion. Of course, the other extreme the church has gone to, okay, then we can do anything we want because we're saved by grace. And that's not right either. It's not what about what you do or don't do. It's about what your heart's seeking after. When your heart, whatever your heart's seeking after will determine what you do and don't do. Because God has written His law in our hearts, not in stone and on pieces of paper. So it's your conscience that becomes the law that's in your heart. John 15. I am the true vine, my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes. So God prunes. God prunes. He prunes. He prunes people's lives. He prunes churches. He prunes organizations. He prunes to get out what's keeping things from growing. And God's the one that knows how to do that. We can't do that. He does it. Every branch of me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may be bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. So he's not talking about being born again. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So he's talking about bearing fruit, the church bearing fruit. 
producing his fruit in the world. But he's saying the only way you can do that is to abide in me. That word in Greek is meno, which means to remain, to be attached to, settled down and vitally connected to. And the example he's using here is a branch in a tree, although it's a vine, but those, their vines were not like things that grew up the side of your house. Their vines like a tree. And he's saying the only way that branch can produce fruit at the other end is if it is literally connected a living connection to the the trunk of that tree because it's out of the trunk of the tree that the life-giving sap flows into the branch and that's what produces the fruit. And we've got a lot of Christians that are trying to produce fruit. They're more concerned about producing fruit than they are abiding in the vine. So they're trying to produce fruit in their own strength. And you can tell because they become weary and heavy laden. And so Jesus says, when you become weary and heavy laden, come to me, connect to me, become connected to me, and learn of me, for I am meek and humble of spirit, and I will give rest to your soul, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That branch does not strain, that branch does not grunt, that branch does not get worn out. All it's got to do is stay vitally connected to the vine, its living relationship with the source of its life. And that's the example Jesus is using here. Okay, let's go. So he's talking here about being joined to him. We talked last time, we talked this about this subject, that when you came to Christ, I, when I was born again, I thought all that happened is my sins were forgiven. And that that's all that happened. That's wonderful. But the reason He forgave my sins was so that He could give me His righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. So He took my sin upon Himself, paid for it, so He could le- legally give me his righteousness. You ought to meditate on that sometime. Let it sink into you. The righteousness you were given was His righteousness. God didn't clean you up. He didn't take out spiritual lie or spiritual soap and scrub you down. He took the old you out and killed it and put His nature in you and gave you His righteousness. So the confidence we have to come before God, the confidence we have to come to Him, and whatever your life is like, to have the boldness and confidence to be joined to a holy God is because He gave you His righteousness. And the, the way He gave you His righteousness is He joined you to Himself. Go over to John 17. We'll come back to 15. He talks about, first few verses talk about his relationship with his Father. Father, glorify me now as, I was, as you had given me glory once before. And we'll get into what that is. And he talks about, I'm coming back to you. And then he talks, starting in verse 6, about his disciples that had walked with him. I didn't lose any of them. And now in verse 20, he starts talking about you and me. I don't pray for these alone. Excuse me, that's the disciples that walked with him. But I also pray for those who believe in me through their word. Through the word of who? Matthew. Through the word of John. Through the word of Luke, who was not one of his disciples, but through, through the word of others that saw him. Through Peter. Through their word we believed. 
So he's talking about us now. Look at this. That they all may be one. So that we may be one with each other and one with Paul, one with Peter, one with John, one with them, one with all that have gone on before us. That we may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Listen to this. That they may be one in us. That the world may believe that you sent me. Down to verse 23. Well, verse 22. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them. Not will give them when I come back. The glory that the glory which you gave me, which was the Holy Spirit in him, I have now given to them when he breathed the Holy Spirit into you. That they may be one just as we are one. I in them, verse 23, and you in me, that they may be made perfect or complete in one, that the world may know that you sent me and love them just as you loved me. Verse 26, And I have declared to them your name and will declare it, that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. The gospel is nothing short of the fact that through his blood he joined you to himself and he joined himself to you. And we're out there trying to handle everything on our own. Coming to him when we get tired and worn out. And that's not God's will for your life. His will for your life is that you learn to walk every day, every moment. And it's a process of learning it in Him. That every challenge, every issue that comes up in your life, you know He's right there in you and with you to support you, to give you an answer, to strengthen you. That's why he says, don't carry your burdens around. Roll them over on me. When, when you've got an urgency kit and come up, you don't have to get on the, your cell phone and call 911 in heaven to get him to come down. He's right there in you waiting to give you answers if we'll just learn to turn to him. How frustrated he must get. Some situation comes up and first of all, he was trying to tell you about it ahead of time. But we didn't spend enough time with him listening. We were too busy out there doing the important things. So we couldn't have listened and heard when he was trying to show us a scripture we need to spend time on. Because when that urgent situation came up, that word would already be planted in our hearts. But he's patient. So we get in this mess. And now he's got to fold his arms kind of inside of us while we run around pulling our hair out if we have much left and, you know, trying to solve this problem, getting all worried, all worked up, only to finally get so exhausted, so frustrated, having talked to everybody we know and got a different answer from everybody we talked to, only to finally say, well, I better pray. As if that's our last resort. Why? Because we don't have an image in our mind that we've been joined to Him. We're one with Him 24 hours a day. Whether you're awake, whether you're asleep, whether you're doing everything right or doing everything wrong, you're still joined to Him. So wherever you go, you take Him. Hmm. And there are more scriptures we could look at that show you that. But just get that, well, I don't have to do it to Pastor Dave, right? But just get that little book in him. If you haven't gotten there, it just has all the scriptures of where it talks about you are in him. And just begin to read some of them. It will change how you see yourself. 
Now let's go back to John 15. All right. So we're one with him. I mean, if you just get that ever, if that just settles down in that, you meditate on that, it will completely change your life. Okay. Now let's go over to verse 18. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. And here's why. Because if you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not in the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now we want to be popular. We want to be loved by everybody. But there's so many promises in the Bible that says if you're doing things right, somewhere along the line, someone's not going to like you. So instead of getting upset, questioning yourself, running back and getting offended, you need to go back and ask yourself, why? Is it because they're seeing Christ in me or is it because I've done something to offend them? Because there's a difference. Remember the word, verse 20, that I said to you, a servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things, look at this, all these things they will do to you because they don't like you. That's not what it says, is it? All these things they will do to you for my name's sake because they don't know him who sent me. In other words, they're saying, they don't know, it's not you, it's who you represent. And the reason they don't like who you represent is they don't really know the Father who sent me. So just as they don't understand who you are, they didn't understand who He is because they don't understand who the Father is. Verse 22, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. What that means is they would have no knowledge of their sin. Their sin would not have been exposed. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. In other words, they would still have an excuse for their sins. But now they have seen and also have hated both me and my father. But this has happened that the word might be fulfilled, which was written that it, that in their law that they hated me without a cause. Now go back to verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, that's why the world doesn't like you. The reason the world doesn't like you is because you're joined to Him. If there's somebody that just doesn't like your face or just like, doesn't like your hair color, they just don't like you, and when they look you, they're looking at your face, guess what? They don't like your feet either. <laughs> they don't like your kneecaps. They don't like your hands. They don't like your shins. They don't like your... They don't like anything about you. Why? Because it's you. So when we stand out, when we are salt to the world... 
It's because the world's now identifying us with the Christ that we've already been joined to. And here's the tension in our lives. When you came to Christ, just what I read happened. You were joined to Him in the spirit realm. When God looks at you, He sees you joined to Christ. You are in Christ. When the devil sees you, He sees you joined to Christ. You're the only one that doesn't see you that way. And because we live in a natural world and our body is of this natural world, there's always a tension where we're being pulled to be like the world. And when we don't respond the way the world wants us to respond, when we, want to, when we know we should stand up and say something or we should just not enter into that or we should not dress like they're dressing or talk like they're talking... When we know that, the pressure is, oh my goodness, if I do that, if, I, if I'm different, they're not going to like me. I'm going to stand out and I'm going to be alone. We're called to stand out. But here's what I used to struggle with. I would know that, but I couldn't find in myself the strength to do that. There are some people who just don't care what anybody thinks of them. Oh, you know, the heck with the world. But that's not the term they'd use. You know, you know, I don't care what anybody thinks of me. I'm independent. I'm going to do what I want. Of course, that person has trouble submitting to God's will usually. But I just wasn't raised like that. I just, I, you know, whatever it was, the way I was raised, I had this, this, I needed to be accepted. I just wanted to be accepted by people. And that's a normal human reaction. And there's nothing wrong with that as long as that doesn't rule us and govern us. We'll see later on why that becomes a trap and a snare. So I I had trouble finding the strength to just be different because I was supposed to be different until I began to understand this. Christ is not asking us to be different in the workplace on our own. He's not asking you to stand on a street corner and be different and weird in the world's eyes. What He's saying to you is when, when you called upon me, And I came into you, I joined you to me. Therefore, you you and I are one. Which means when people see you, they see me. When people respond to you, they respond. That's what he's saying here. The way they respond to you has nothing to do with you. It's what they think of me. And I'm sure many of you had the experience of talking to somebody. You may be on a plane or in a marketplace somewhere, and you just get to, maybe, maybe it's even in your family at some family gathering. You get talking to somebody, you know, and they'll talk about God all day. But the moment you mention Jesus, the conversation changes. Now they no longer see you. They begin to respond to you based on what they think of Him. You become invisible to them. This is why the disciples, I used to wonder when I was an early Christian and would read through the book of Acts, you know, Peter and John get arrested because they healed this man who'd been lame from his, from, his, from his mother's womb. And they bring him before the authorities and they threaten them. And they just can't, there's no way they can threaten them. They, they threaten them and it doesn't do any good. To the point where they said, look, we're going to let you go. But the only thing you can't do is we command you that you can't preach in his name, which shows you where the issue is. And Peter's reaction is, look, whether it's right to say things in his name or not, I'll let you decide. I'm just telling you, we can't help. We can't help 
but talk about what we've seen and heard. Why? Because we're part of us. And then they went back, and when they were beaten, when they were persecuted, they rejoiced that they were persecuted. That's what he says to do. We read in Matthew 5, but it's not suck it up. Oh, I got to rejoice because I'm being persecuted. I got to do it because it's the right thing to do. No, it's because they saw what that meant that they were persecuted. When they were persecuted, it was proof to them that they were like Christ. It was proof to them that the world could see that they'd been joined to him and and that they were being identified with him and they were much more satisfied being identified with Christ than being popular with the world. So the foundation, what's at stake in what we're doing literally is whether we're living out our identification with him. Because too many Christians, and I've been there, too many Christians in church were identified with him. But we get out in the workplace or we get out in the world out there where we're not, we're alone. In here, we're all together. It's easy to sing praise the Lord. It's easy to sing Jesus, I love you. It's easy to do that here in church. But out in the world, when it looks like it's just you, and you're going to now stand out and you're going to now be identified in their eyes with him, that's when the challenge comes. But that's when you grow. You grow much more in those challenges than you do in church, in your identification with Him. Let's look, um, let's go to John cha- uh, uh, James chapter 4. So what's behind all this? What's really at the foundation of being different from the world is because we're joined to Christ who is different from the world. was here this afternoon. There we go. James 4. Well, let's start at the beginning. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Don't they come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and you cannot obtain. You fight and war but you do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss with the wrong motives that you may spend it on your pleasures. Here's the issue here. You adulterers and adulteresses, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? In other words, there's no middle ground. Don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend with the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the Scripture says in vain, the Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, jealously, but He gives more grace? And we'll talk later on about what to do when we're in that situation because there is a, great, there is a way out. There's a prescription of what to do. But what I want you to see here, the root of this is in verse 4. He says, when you're doing this, when you're asking, when you're trying to live on the pleasure of the world, when you're, when, you're, when you're asking for things because what you're trying to do is get the world to satisfy your needs, he calls yourself, spiritually, you're an adulterer, an adulteress. Now, let's think about what that is, what he's saying here. What is an adulterer? An adulterer who's somebody 
who has entered into a covenant of marriage with an individual and by that covenant of marriage have said, I choose you out of all the women of the world or out of all the men of the world. I choose you to be the only person from which I'm going to get my needs met. My physical needs met as the ultimate emotional needs. You are the one we are being back. And the essence of marriage is union. It's a covenant. And the two shall become one flesh. Whoever God has joined together, let no man bring asunder. So in God's eyes, marriage is a blood covenant. And the essence of a blood covenant is two individuals have now become one, just as you became one with Christ. And what adultery is, is when one or two people that have become one with each other now break that union by choosing to have a a need met from some source other than the one they made their pledge to. Everybody understand me? Or do I need to draw diagrams? Okay, okay, okay. All right, that's the essence, that's what adultery is. And spiritual adultery is exactly the same thing. What James is talking about here is don't you understand that you were joined to Christ and the ultimate source of your needs being met in your life. It's not saying you can't have fun, you can't go to an amusement park. He's not saying that. But the dependence of your satisfaction of your needs has first of all got to come from the one you've been joined to. And when we go instead and draw it from the world and what the world offers, what we're doing is we're breaking the commitment we made to Him that we're one and that's because we're one, I'm only going to seek this from you. Only you satisfy me. See, the world will teach you that when you've been married 46 and a half years, it gets dull, it gets boring, you know. How could you do that? I'm more excited about her. I'm more in love with her than I've ever been in my life, and it's growing more and more. But that's because we approach it as a covenant. Not an obligation, a commitment, out of which is a security. And in that security, you can grow and mature together. And the only way you can really grow and mature as a Christian is in the security of that union with Him. And we want the benefit of that, and yet we want to run around in the world and have the world take care of things that we're to get, first of all, from Him. And that's what James is talking about here when he's talking about pleasures. He's not saying you can't ever have fun. He can't say Christians have to walk around like Pastor Sam used to say, you know, baptized in pickle juice. (laughs) Jesus had to smile. Jesus had to have fun because kids love to be around him. They don't want to be around some pickle puss. They don't like to be around religious stuff. They want something that's real. Jesus is the most real person that's ever lived. And I've got to believe. The Bible says, in the presence of the Lord is fullness of joy. But we confuse carnal pleasure with joy and happiness. And they're not the same thing. So this is why this understanding now that we've been joined to Him in a covenant. We're one with Him. And so 
But walking that out in this life means, therefore, I've got to be willing to be every situation identified with Him. But oh, if we're willing to be identified with Him, then He's willing to be identified with us. John chapter 9. I wasn't going to get to this yet, but I just feel led to go there right now. John chapter 9. I want you to see that this is not like a, just a commandment that we're supposed to just suck it up and do it. Because if you begin to see, I'm joined to Christ. I'm one with Him. That's why, that's why I, I, I've, I've got to be identified with Him. That's why I've got to, to be like Him and not like the world. John chapter 9 is a story of a man that was born blind. And Jesus comes to him and he heals him. And it gets him in all kinds of trouble. And so he's brought in before the authorities. And, 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 and they bring him, and it was here, verse 13. And they brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees, and it was the Sabbath when Jesus made clay and opened his eyes. And the Pharisees had also asked him again and saying, asked him how he received his sight. And he said, I, he, he put clay on my eyes, and I've washed and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees said, this man has not come from God because he didn't keep the Sabbath. Talking about Jesus. He didn't keep the rules. Others say, how can a man who's a sinner do such signs? And so there was division among them. So they said to the blind man, what do you say about him? Because he opened your eyes and he said he's a prophet, which is all he knew of him at the time. But the Jews didn't believe concerning him who that had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him who'd received his sight. They just couldn't believe it was true. So they asked them saying, is this your son whom you say was born blind? How come is it we see? And his parents had answered and said to him, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but by what means he see now? We don't know. Or who opened his eyes that we don't know? He's old enough. You ask him, and he'll speak for himself. And his parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed he was the Christ, they would put him out of the synagogue. Therefore, his present parents said, if he's of age, you ask him. In other words, they kept passing the buck. I don't want to take a stand. You take it. So they again called the man who was blind and said to him, Give God glory, for we know this man is a sinner. Talking about Jesus. And he answered and said, well, isn't, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. <laughs> See, when you're a witness, you're only a witness of what you know. I'm not going to get into a theological debate with you. I can't tell you who this man is. I just know one thing. I was blind, and now I see. And they said to him again, what did he do to you? How did he open his eyes? Verse 27. And he answers him, Look, I already told you and you didn't listen to me. What do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciple? Oh boy, that got on their skin. <laughs> so they reviled him and said, You're his disciple, but we're of Moses. We're Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we don't know where he's from. And the man answered and said to them, why, isn't that a marvelous thing that you don't know where he's from and yet he's opened my eyes? See, when God performs miracles, when God demonstrates himself, it presents a problem to people. They can't deny he did it, so they've got to try to interpret it one way or the other. Isn't it interesting he opened my eyes? Verse 31. Now we know that God doesn't hear sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears them. 
Since the world began, has it been unheard that anyone opened the eyes of somebody who was born blind? If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered and said to him, You are completely born in sins, and you're teaching us. And they, look at this, they kicked him out of the synagogue. He took a stand. He said, All I know, I don't know much. I just know I was blind and now I see. Whether he's a sinner or not, I can't tell, but it seems to me that God doesn't answer sinners. That God only answers righteous people. And all I know is from what I know is from time, beginning of time, it's never been seen that there was a man that went around opening the eyes of somebody born blind. So they kick him out of the synagogue. Notice what happened when he identified with Christ. Notice what happened when he took a stand and was willing to be different than what was expected. Look at the next verse, 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And when he found him, he went and found him who had been cast out. Keep your finger there and go with me quickly to Philippians chapter 3. We're way off the notes at this point. Philippians 3, verse 8. Verse 7, what things were gained to me, I count loss for Christ. Indeed, I also count, count loss all things for the excellency of the knowledge or of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. If you go back and look at what he counted as loss, particularly, it was his reputation, it was what people thought of him, it was his resume of the things he'd done. And be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is under the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, and the righteousness which comes from God through faith. Why? Verse 10. That I may know him. The word know in Greek is to mean to have a full experiential knowledge of somebody. That I may know him. That I may be bound to him. That I may abide in him. That I may know him and the power's resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Why? that I may be conformed to his death so that if by any means I may attain to the out-resurrection of the dead. Paul said, I've died to what people think of me. I've died to the image that I have of myself. I've died to my reputation. Why? Because I realize that I can't have my reputation. I can't have what people think well of me and know him to that degree. So when I let, give up my reputation, when I die to who, what people think of me, then I come to know him much more closely. And here we see it acted out in John 9. The man had a choice to make. He could either do what his parents said. Look, I don't know. You know, you guys figure it out. He said, but isn't this interesting? I don't know much. I just know, man, this man couldn't have been a sinner because no man that's a sinner can open blind eyes. And all I know is I was once blind and now I see you figure it out. But I know this man must come from God. They kick him out of the synagogue and the very first thing is Jesus goes and finds him. Now watch happens. Jesus heard they cast him out and when he found him, he said to him, do you believe in the Son of God? And he answered and said to him, Who is he, Lord, 
that I may believe in him. And Jesus answered and said to him, who is, Jesus answered and said to him, you have both seen him and it is his, he, who, you are, who is talking with you. Jesus now reveals himself for who he truly is to this man once he took a stand and identified with him. Once he was willing to be salt, once he was willing to be identified with Christ, then Christ was able to reveal more of who he is to that man. Because while we're balancing, doing this balancing act between holding on to Christ because we need him and we love him in one degree and trying to hold on to the world so that we're accepted by the world, we're brought back and forth. We're what James calls earlier a double-minded man, which is unstable. But the moment we let go of this desire to be accepted, and it's an act of faith at first, and we're willing to be identified with him, then he is now able to reveal himself to us in a relationship and an intimacy and a depth that we can't have when we're trying to hold on to both. He still loves us. We still belong to him, but we're cheating ourselves because you're not getting the world. You can't have it anymore. Because you were taken out of it. And it doesn't satisfy, it just gets you in trouble. So why do we try to hold on to it? We'll look at that down the road, why we do. It's because we want to be accepted and we'll find out what a deceit that is. But I want you to see what's at stake. It's not just whether or not we're sold or not. It's not just what we perform what we're supposed to do. It's affect our knowing Him the degree to which we can know Him. Not because He's holding Himself back, because you can't do this. You have to have your eyes on Him. And when you have your eyes on Him, you've turned your back to the world. Paul says, through the cross, I was crucified to the world, and through the cross, the world has been crucified to me. Galatians 2.20, I say this every day, I've been crucified with Christ. And I walk myself through what that means. That means my reputation's been crucified. What people think of me has been crucified. What I want to do has been crucified. My ambitions for myself are crucified. Anything that's of me, centered around me, has been crucified. It's died on that cross. Therefore, when that issue comes up today, i got to go back to the fact I'm dead. I have no ambition of my own. I have no, no, no self-interest. Now, does that mean it doesn't rise up? Oh, not yet. Well, if you read on later on in Philippians 3, Paul says, I haven't arrived there yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, I press on. I press on towards that goal. It's a goal to press on towards. But this evening, I wanted you to see what's at stake in that. I'm going to read one last verse, and then we'll, we'll end for tonight. 1 John 2, 15. And the agony is trying to hold on to both. The peace comes when we let go. 1 John 2.15 Do not love the world. Doesn't mean you can't enjoy it. Love it. Or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 
For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of, is, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. What's at stake in our being salt in the world and light to the world? It's understanding it's because we've been joined to Christ. And because we've been joined to Christ, we have to decide if I belong to him, if I'm in him, am I willing to act like him and talk like him? Or am I going to do what people do on Halloween? They put on a costume and act like and dress up like something they're not. I never thought of that before, but that's what a lot of Christians do. They belong to Christ underneath, but we want to wear a mask and a costume so that we're accepted by the world. And what Jesus is telling us is time to take the mask off and the costume off because if the world sees someone that looks like them in you and me, then we can't affect he can't affect them through us. But if we'll take the costume and the mask off and let them see who we really are, then through us, he can touch and affect their lives. And it's through the, that open contact with him that we can come to know him in a way that we've never known him before. Let's pray. Father, we realize that there may be subjects that are easier to listen to and more exciting to talk about. But what you've called us to be and who you've made us to be of necessity makes us different from the world. Fill us with your spirit and strengthen us with an awareness of how much and how truly and really Christ dwells in us through you that we may find ourselves more aware of you on the inside than we are of the world that's around us give us the boldness to be who we've been made to be give us the boldness to take off the mask and take off the costume and to let the world see who you've made us to be and are making us to be not perfect, not complete yet, but belonging to you. Help us by your spirit to have a deeper understanding that we truly have been joined to Christ, that we've been entered into a covenant of union with him, and that to be faithful to him, we're to seek as the source of our pleasure and the source of all of our needs, first of all, our relationship with him. Thank you that your word tells us that you give grace to those that are willing to admit where we are. So if we're not in this place yet, you promise us, Lord, that if we'll face it, be honest with you, that you give grace to us to change and to come to where you've called us to be. For that grace, we thank you now. In Jesus' name, amen. And amen.